This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. Cape Fear on Earth is also made possible by listeners and readers like you. You can support local journalism and Cape Fear on Earth by subscribing to the Star News today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. Take a moment and imagine yourself stepping into a duel. After staring your opponent in the eye, gun in hand, you both turn your backs to one another and take what could be the last 10 paces of your life. One, two, three. Each step takes you closer to fate, to a single moment of violence that all depends on how quick you are to the trigger or how good of a shot your opponent is. The practice of dueling is an antiquated notion today, and yet it was once considered a dignified means of defending one's honor. It was a face-off that could be bloodless and settled with a handshake. Or it could prove fatal if you make just one mistake. Dueling made its way from Europe with the establishment of the colonies and the birth of America. It would claim the lives of newspapermen, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, at least two senators, a congressman, and perhaps most famously, one founding father as was the case in the duel between Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr in 1804. In America, dueling caught on nowhere more than in the antebellum South, where a man's honor was thought to be worth dying for. As early as the 1750s, the Cape Fear region saw several of its residents pay the ultimate price at the mercy of a bullet. These duels date back to one of the first major settlements in the Cape Fear and persist well into the 1800s culminating in what some believe to be the last fatal duel ever fought in the South. They are stories of bruised egos, political disputes, and the age-old battle for the heart of a woman. Not every duel was fought to end in death, but they all feature a cast of characters who shot their way into history. This is Cape Fear Unearthed, the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, and mysterious figures of southeastern North Carolina. I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter with the Star News here in Wilmington. This week, we're flipping to a new chapter in our local history book to explore the art of the duel, a practice that was often seen as a means of serving a brand of justice the law simply couldn't. That's because most duels weren't born of legitimate crimes, but of hurt feelings and wounded pride. What follows is a trio of short stories of duels that played out in southeastern North Carolina, from the years prior to the American Revolution, all the way up to the brink of the Civil War. As always, I will share with you the stories as they have been passed down through history and told through legend and then I'll bring in someone from the community with knowledge of our tales to continue the discussion and explore whether or not history can be trusted. So settle in for this dueling episode of Cape Fear Unearthed as we set the stage for nearly a century of men settling their differences at 10 paces. The first duel in the Cape Fear region 
and maybe the first in all of North Carolina, was fought over a woman, and yet history didn't bother to remember her name. Instead, what has survived are the names and fates of the men who resorted to violence to win her affection. Or at least that's how one version of the story goes. Captain Alexander Simpson and Lieutenant Thomas Whitehurst were officers of the British Navy stationed aboard the HMS Viper, which was moored on the shores of Brunswick Town in 1765. Brunswick Town was one of the first major settlements in the Cape Fear region under the Royal Crown and served as an important port along the Cape Fear River from 1726 until 1776. The busy settlement of Brunswick Town is part of the bedrock of this region's history, and we're going to discuss its establishment, success, and fiery demise later this season. The Simpson-Whitehurst duel would end up spanning the unexpected transitional period between two royal governors of North Carolina, Arthur Dobbs and William Tryon, both of which lived at Brunswick Town for a period. It was a report written by Tryon to the Board of Trade that lays out the details of the duel, which would turn out to be quite the gruesome affair. While on board the Viper, Whitehurst and Simpson would have had a professional relationship, one marked by tension and rivalry even before they arrived in Brunswick Town. Some reports of the day claim politics were at the root of the duel, but the story that would persist for the next two centuries places an unnamed young woman at its center. Some stories say the men were fighting over her hand in marriage, while more recent findings suggest that Simpson was actually already married to the woman, and their courtship happened to be the last straw in Whitehurst's grudge with his shipmate. Whatever led them to the dueling field, the two men met among the thick woods on the outskirts of the settlement, not far from St. Philip's Church, in the early morning hours of March 18, 1765. After the men took their places, Simpson's first shot brutally tore through Whitehurst's thigh, knocking him to the ground. In turn, Whitehurst managed to get off a shot that pierced Simpson's shoulder, somehow through his back. Seeing that Whitehurst couldn't stand from the shot, Simpson took the opportunity to approach his opponent and struck him over the head with the butt of his pistol, a beating that is said to have been so severe it cracked the weapon and Whitehurst's skull at the moment of impact. He was dead within minutes. Breaking the code and turning the gentleman's duel into a physical brawl was greatly frowned upon, and Simpson knew it. He was arrested immediately for willful murder and confined to a cell until March 27th when he escaped and fled the town and the Viper. The next day, Governor Dobbs unexpectedly died of a stroke, leaving acting Governor Tryon to lead the investigation. As one of his first acts in the new position, Tryon issued a proclamation that ordered 50 pounds be awarded to anyone who turned the fugitive in. The acting governor sought Simpson so fiercely because he didn't believe that he could make it that far with such a wound, and he wasn't wrong. Within weeks, Simpson turned himself in and was held until he could be tried by the courts in October on the charge of murder. The verdict was not guilty, 
but he was convicted of the lesser charge of manslaughter and sentenced to a peculiar brand of justice. In open court, the letter M was branded on his left thumb. A small debt, considering Whitehurst, had paid the price for the duel with his life. Two decades later, another friendship would be fractured on the dueling stage, this time in Wilmington. The year was 1787, and the wounds of the American Revolution weren't yet healed. British sentiment had worn thin among the newly emancipated colonists, and those who fought for the crown weren't the most welcome of residents in the new land of the Stars and Stripes. This is where we begin our tale of two Johns, Revolutionary War hero Major John Swan and local merchant John Bradley. It all began with the arrival of a stranger, a shipwrecked British naval officer who washed ashore with nothing but the clothes on his back. Swan, who is said to have lived a life by a military code of honor, welcomed the wayward officer into his home despite their different allegiances. Bradley, who served with Swan, couldn't look past what he saw as an enemy of the state, unworthy of forgiveness or his friend's hospitality. Sometime later, the officer, whose name doesn't show up in the written accounts of the story, happened to make his way into Bradley's popular shop in Wilmington on the same day several rings went missing. The store was searched top to bottom, but nothing came of it. Furious over what he perceived to be theft, Bradley threw blame at the officer with no evidence to back up his claim. Local historian Lewis T. Moore's version of the story puts into perspective what such a charge would have meant to the officer. Quote, a stranger in a strange land and without any loyal friends except his host, the Britisher was helpless. End quote. Furthermore, he states that the man likely feared the accusation would escalate into a physical altercation, and he would be forced to defend himself and possibly harm Bradley. And the optics of hurting a beloved businessman in a town that loathes your existence would not have been a wise move. Lucky for the man, Swan was not about to stand by and let his guest be accused of thievery without evidence. The Patriot demanded an apology from Bradley, a request that was immediately denied. That refusal was followed in short order by a challenge to a duel. To this, Bradley accepted. Friends of the two men made the arrangements for the duel on the afternoon of July 11, 1787, in the vicinity of 4th and Market Streets. According to Moore, Swan's hero status included a reputation for being a good shot. He allegedly boasted that he could shoot small coins stood on their edge from 40 or 50 paces out. If that was the case, a duel would be nothing to fear for the legendary marksman. But killing Bradley wasn't his intention. He was friends with the man, and he didn't want that friendship to be ended with a bullet. Or at least that's what he told his seconds prior to the duel. Instead, he planned to inflict a flesh wound and nothing more. When the time came, 
His first shot lodged in Bradley's hip, an injury that wasn't fatal, but certainly more painful and brutal than he intended. Seeing what he had done, he almost rushed to his friend's aid, but instead he stood his ground, according to the rules of engagement. Bradley, meanwhile, had made no such declaration to take it easy on his friend. After falling to the ground from being shot, Bradley regained his footing, took aim, and shot Swan in the head, killing him instantly. Seeing a Patriot gunned down over the reputation of an Englishman didn't sit well with the residents of Wilmington. They had just lost a hero to a pointless duel between friends. The Englishman's fate remains as unwritten as his name, though some say he immediately fled the port city after his proxy was gunned down. Bradley issued an apology for the slang, but was still arrested and tried by the superior court in Swan's death. After a lengthy trial, the duel was found to be mutually agreed upon, and he was pardoned of the charge. Unlike Simpson two decades prior, he wasn't branded with the reminder of the duel for the rest of his days, but he might as well have been. His refusal to admit guilt in his claim against the Englishman had led to that fateful afternoon, from which he forever carried the much heavier, lifelong guilt of killing his friend. The final duel to persist in local lore is perhaps its most legendary and bears the similar theme of a life unnecessarily lost. By 1856, the region's stature as a port was growing, as were the political aspirations of some of its residents. It's in that political arena that would emerge what some call the last fatal duel ever fought in the South, or at least the last one recorded by history. It takes place between two bright young men with the political admiration of their respective political parties at their backs. Dr. William Wilkins was a prominent physician in town and the rising star of the Democratic Party. Joseph H. Flanner was a successful businessman and a respected voice in the American Party, also known as the Know-Nothing Party. Their argument stemmed from a heated debate over an open seat on the Commissioners of Navigation Board. The seat would determine control of the board, which was in charge of governing the regulations of the port. In a pair of debates on April 30th and May 1st, 1856, the parties made their impassioned cases that the other would be wrong if handed the election and control of the board. Wilkins, in particular, allegedly charged the know-nothings with a willingness to compromise the public safety in order to make more money by relaxing the quarantine of incoming vessels for health precautions in order to get supplies in and out of the port more quickly. If you recall from last week's episode, it was this careless practice that likely contributed to the arrival of yellow fever in Wilmington six years later. Wilkins claimed that the know-nothings cared more about a dollar than the common citizen enraged Flanner, who publicly shamed Wilkins for perpetuating what he called a lie. Apparently angered by Flanner's own anger, Wilkins issued a challenge to a duel 
to settle the bad blood between the two, to which Flanner accepted. Dueling was not welcome in Wilmington at the time, so the men went just across the South Carolina border into what is now Fair Bluff for their face-off. Like Swan some 70 years earlier, Flanner is said to have entered the duel with a plan to fire his pistol in the air and then settle the dispute with words and not bloodshed. If only he had expressed that plan with his opponent, who fired his first shot at Flanner and grazed his arm. Seeing Wilkings was out for blood, Flanner wasn't going to waste a bullet on leniency. The May 3rd duel lasted three rounds. One of Flanner's shots knocked Wilkings' hat off his head. His final shot pierced Wilkings' lung, killing the promising young politician within seconds. The seconds on the field, along with a surgeon who was observing, would become defendants in the court of public opinion when news of the duel reached Wilmington. In a bit of irony, when the election was held two days after the duel, Flanner still won the Commissioners of Navigation seat over the Democratic candidate, Miles Coston. But he only won by one vote. Legend goes that it was actually a Democrat who accidentally cast the deciding vote against his own party after grabbing the wrong ballot in the bustle of the election. Despite the win for Flanner, the duel hung over his victory and the town like a dark cloud. In an exceptionally mournful obituary for Wilkings on May 5th in the Wilmington Daily Journal, he was lauded as a brave, ardent, and generous man whose funeral allegedly drew the largest turnout Wilmington had ever seen. Quote, Many an eye was wet, although long unused to tears. And as the solemn bell tolled, all hearts throbbed mournfully and painfully. When he died, a man, a noble, true-hearted man, passed from us. End quote as was the case with many of the duels that have persisted in local legend, Flanner's victory was unsatisfying. He wasn't tried for Wilkings' murder, but he did eventually leave town. Served as a North Carolina state agent to Europe during the Civil War, and is buried in Newburn after his death in 1885. Wilkings' memory, however, was hoisted high by the Wilmington Democratic Association, 20 feet high, to be exact. They erected a massive monument of posthumous praise on top of his grave at Oakdale Cemetery, inscribing on it his accomplishments and, in greater detail, their personal sadness over the loss of such potential. The duel was not mentioned, only alluded to as a career suddenly closed. On the statue to his life and memory, they forever etched his name in big letters in granite. Unfortunately, they misspelled his name. Joining me now to talk further about duels in our episode this week are two guests, the first of which you will recognize. It is local historian Chris E. Fonville Jr. And then a first-time guest, Jim McKee, who is the site manager of Brunswick Town Fort Anderson Historic Site in Brunswick County. Thank you both for being here. 
Thank you for having me. Thank you for having us. So we are going to talk about two of the duels that I mentioned in our episode this week, uh, the first of which was the one in Brunswick Town, the simpson Whitehurst one, and then we're going to talk about the Wilkings-Flanner one. And they're kind of bookends for the region because the first was the first recorded in North Carolina, and the last was the final fatal duel that is recorded here in the South. And so I think that's a really good place to start. But I want to get, before we jump into those, understand what a duel would have been like in society. Were they legal? Were they acceptable? I mean, how did these kind of happen? Uh, Dueling was um, a way for gentlemen of equal social standing to resolve their differences. It was illegal in every state in the Union, but not enforced or loosely enforced. These were men of influence and power, and they ruled oftentimes what on the books might have been considered murder, uh, was dropped to manslaughter, and oftentimes there were pardons by uh, state governors. But, uh, but duels were socially acceptable, illegal, but socially acceptable. It was all about honor. Yeah, all about defending your honor. That was, that was huge in the 18th and 19th century. Yeah, so frowned upon, but not unheard of. No, not unheard of, but defending your manliness, defending your honor, your character, your reputation, that was everything. That was more important to a man, to a gentleman, than anything else. Yeah. The accumulation of wealth, power, none of that mattered. It was his reputation that was foremost among who he was, how he identified himself. Is that why we see these duels arise out of uh, you know, not petty things, but different things. You know, we have politics, we have the fight for a woman, we have uh, theft. You know, they're not legal means that they're coming out of, so it's really a, kind of a jab at someone's pride, you know, their their social standing. Well, some of them were petty. The Benjamin Smith-Morris Moore duel was over a drunken slur. Not, to, not Benjamin Smith slurring Moore, but slurring Moore's father. When did that happen? That was 1805. And where was it? The slur occurred in North Carolina, but the duel, they went right across the border to Boundary House in the South Carolina where the North Carolina officials couldn't touch them. They could watch the duel, but they couldn't touch them. So these, these men kind say of— that Benjamin Smith was governor of the state in 1810-1811, so right. this was a very influential very politician influential. Yeah. and landowner from Brunswick County. And namesake of Southport. And weren't they cousins? They were cousins, yes. So they were cousins. I mean, this is family. Honor superseded their relationship. And it's something that could have been resolved by a simple apology. But it would have been a smirk against Smith's reputation had he apologized. Well, and this is, since this is all based on you know protecting one's reputation— being the one who apologizes is not the cool thing to do or really is not going to have you come out as the victor, even if someone doesn't die. So, um, Well, you you did not have to kill someone in the field of honor. You just had to show up. That's right. And And fire. negotiate a peaceful resolution or solution to the differences that you had. Uh, but what was important that you show up on the field of honor, and it was called the field of honor, and there mm-hmm. were prescribed rules and regulations on how you fought duels mm-hmm. as well. And there were several. There were several that they showed up. They somewhat came up with a with a solution, but they still went through the duel. But when they fired, 
they fired to miss. Yeah. So everything honor was maintained. Well, and, but in the three that we talk about this episode, you know, they're, they're stories of, of some of the men who were involved going in with that intention and then seeing their opponent mm-hmm. be like, well, I'm out for blood, so I got to protect myself. And so that's why you see these three fatal duels versus, you know, kind of just kind of matching wits and then, you know, going about your lives. Um, all right. So let's transition to Simpson Whitehurst. Jim's going to be back later this season to talk about Brunswick Town's full history. But where, what was happening around 1765 that kind of would have set the scene for this particular time period in this particular duel? Well, the, it was it was getting ready to be a transitional period in Brunswick's history um, and North Carolina's. Uh, Royal Governor Arthur Dobbs was about to die. No one knew this, but he was at least about to leave. Mm-hmm. William Tryon was about to become the next governor. So there's a little bit of a transition getting ready to happen. This really had nothing to do with the duel. Um, Brunswick was a major port. So there was always a Royal Navy presence in that in, mm-hmm. in the Cape Fear River. And HMS Viper, which was a sloop of war that was on the Carolina station, would usually patrol between Charleston and Norfolk, Virginia. At some point early in 1765, the master of the ship, Alexander Simpson, and one of the lieutenants, uh, Thomas Whitehurst, had a disagreement. We don't know how far that went, but another officer smoothed things over, okay. and a duel was averted. Fast forward a couple of weeks later, the ship is in Norfolk, Virginia, and there's another young lieutenant who's brought on board, and he has a young lady that he's got affections for that that's, lives in Norfolk. Well, as soon as she comes on the ship, Simpson sees her. And falls in love. Literally, within hours, it seems like, he proposes marriage, and they're married. Now, the young lieutenant who has been dishonored seeks revenge. But he doesn't go out and and go after Simpson himself. No, he knows about the bad blood between Whitehurst and Simpson and gets into Whitehurst's good graces. So somewhere along the, the, the route back from Norfolk to Brunswick... This is when everything explodes, okay. and the young suitor uh, gets Whitehurst to rekindle the flames. So the the woman that they ended up fighting over, mm-hmm. she wasn't even living in Brunswick Town, or was she? No, she yeah. was not. Yeah. Her she her her father um, had a had a pretty major tavern in Norfolk, so she was going to come from means. But she was also beautiful, and Simpson just flat fell in love with her. So, you know, I, I've read a few accounts of this, obviously older accounts, that mention that she's from Brunswick or that he, one of these men had a wife in Norfolk. And so there's there's other tellings of this, but this seems to be um, oddly more fascinating that it arose somewhere else and kind of bled into their stay in Brunswick town. Right. This is, you know, there's, there's not a tremendous amount of written documentation. Mm-hmm. about what led up to it. Um, where a lot of the information comes from is a couple of newspaper accounts. This was so big, most of the newspaper accounts you find are from Europe. Wow. So this was a big deal back well, I mean, then. This, they're still living under the royal crown. So, I mean, exactly. there's, there's, I imagine Europe is just as interested as anyone about what's happening with the colonists in, uh, oh, in yes. America. Oh, yes. Um, so 
do we know what happened to Simpson after he is branded? Uh, you know, he is charged with, he's convicted of manslaughter, and then he's branded. What, what happens to him? We don't know. Um, I've gone through the records, and I find several Alexander Simpsons serving in the Royal Navy still post-1766, but I can't determine if one of these is him. There's just, Unfortunately, that's a popular name. Would it have been considered even more of a you know departure from legality to not only have a duel, but then end a duel in beating someone to death? Well, I think that's why it got such press and such attention, because it was such a heinous ending to the duel. Um, once shots are fired, that should be it. But what caused Simpson to snap like he did? I mean, he got the first shot. He hit Whitehurst in the thigh and broke his and shattered his femur. Did Simpson turn around to say it's over? And then while he's on the ground, Whitehurst take a shot at him because he shot Simpson in the back. Yeah, yeah. For some reason, Simpson turned around and wasn't expecting the shot. That's kind there's of fascinating. There's a lot of questions. Yeah, there's there a lot of questions. But to shoot a man in the back, that's just that's, that's wrong. That is well, that just it just seems like you, a violation of what you're you doing look there. At the other people who end up getting involved in it. I mean, you've got Royal Governor Dobbs, you got Royal Governor William Tryon, you're going to have um, Captain Jacob Lobb of the Viper, you're going to have Captain Constantine Phipps of the HMS Diligence. All of these people, except for Dobbs, are going to end up having vital roles later on that year in the Stamp Act Rebellion. This is a fascinating kind of intertwined narrative of so many people that it's not just a, two men in a duel. Yeah. Yeah. But that's history. Wow, just that's you, know, you start researching something and you start pulling in the other people and it ends up you can go down so many rabbit holes if you, if you don't stay focused. Oh, absolutely. My question is, was Dobbs... At Brunswick, at Castle Dobbs at the time that the yes. duel took place? He was at yeah. home because he was, Dobbs was packing up, getting ready to move back to Ireland and go into retirement. And he had the stroke on, uh, actually, we think he might have had the stroke the day Simpson escaped, and then he died the next day. Wow. I'm just wondering why Dobbs didn't do anything to, to intervene. I mean, it must have been a, a, a major event in Brunswick Town that everyone in the, in the port would have known about. Apparently, no. We don't find any, any evidence, any written documentation of anything leading up to this duel from the people of Brunswick or from the area. All we know is, according to the newspaper accounts, the duel took place near the new church that was almost completed, which is St. Philip's Church, which would have been the outskirts or right on the edge of town. So they probably went just north or west of the church, actually just west of the church to have the duel just outside town. Why why duel at churches? It's like the Swan (laughs) Bradley duel just out the back door of uh, St. James Anglican Church. It almost seems like bad luck to do it in a church or do it near a church. All right, so that is all fascinating. And if that fascinated you as much as it did me, then you're going to love us talking about Brunswick Town later this season because that's just one piece of the story. Um, All right, let's jump forward almost a century, I think, to the Wilkings-Flanner duel. Um, and the thing that fascinates me about this one is 
why is it the most the the duel that people point to when they talk about duels in this area? Is it because of it being kind of the end of duels in the area, or at least fatal ones? Well, because it was the last fatal duel in North Carolina, there are accounts of duels occurring as late as 1883, but no fatalities. So this is the last fatal duel in North Carolina, and it was between two very influential men from Wilmington, uh, Joseph H. Flanner, who was a commission merchant, and uh, Dr. Uh, William Wilkins, who was... Uh, a physician, we would say today that he was a pharmacist. Okay. Um, and they were both um, major politicians. Flanner, a member of the Know Nothing, uh, um, the American Party, uh, they were uh, considered or called, you know, the, the Know Nothing yeah. Party. And Wilkins was uh, a member of the Democratic Association here in Wilmington. And, uh, so they were two prominent they, men. I they mean, were two they, prominent people men. would have known their names. I mean, I even looked at newspapers, and you saw Flanner's name all over the newspapers of that time. A- absolutely, he was uh, one of the leading commission merchants. And Wilmington was relatively, a, comparatively, a small city. Yeah. There would have been about ninety five hundred people at the time that the duel took place in eighteen fifty six, and these men knew each other. Uh, by some accounts, they were friends. Other accounts, that they were associates, but they knew each other. Yeah. Um, a lot of antagonism between the two parties. You know, the Know Nothing Party was anti-Catholic. They were nativists. Um, The Democratic Party, uh, states' rights, a lot of local tension. But a lot of this was over something fairly benign, uh, a local election to the uh, Board of Navigation that Flanner was running for. But uh, also there was the Kansas-Nebraska uh, Act that had just been passed, and violence had broken out in uh, Kansas uh, over that, uh, uh, that situation. Um, so tensions were high. Tensions were high, not just locally, but nationally. Yeah. And um, it, as with all politics, you know, words were exchanged between the Democrats over the policies of the American Party. The American Party members responded in kind, um, and uh, we don't know specifically what Wilkins said uh, about Flanner and what Flanner said. We do know that Wilkins said something to the effect that uh, that because of the policies of the local uh, Know Nothing Party, uh, that they were more interested in making profit than seeing to the policies of the navigation board. It, it gets a little boring at that, that point. But we, we do know that uh, Flanner said that what Wilkins had said at one of the Democratic Association meetings were all lies. Yeah. Okay, now his reputation has been impugned. And so Wilkins challenged uh, Flanner to a duel. You know, I was reading the account of this from Lewis T. Moore, who we've you know talked about on the show several times, and and he alludes to this connection between this particular event and the yellow fever epidemic of 1862 because it was navigation, and one of the charges he says that Wilkins kind of threw at the Know Nothing Party was that they were going to relax quarantine procedures in the port so that they could get more stuff in and out and make more profit. Absolutely, and Flanner, of course, was a commission merchant. If the regulations were more lax, uh, then 
commodities could be brought in, sold more easily, greater profit to be made. And that's the implication that Wilkins was making with the policies of the American Party. Absolutely. So it's it's well, the thing I, th- I think is interesting about this particular duel is uh, and, you know, we don't duel today, thankfully, you know, not, you know, not that I know of. Uh, but this at the root of this is politics, which is something that still divides us to this day. Thank God we don't have dueling today because it might be bad. And I think that's why it resonates today, because of the divisiveness in our country over politics. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what was going on then. Times have changed, but people and politics <laughs> we still fight over the we same still fight things. over this yeah. yep i think i just i find that fascinating and uh, you go out to oakdale and you see this man's kind of monument i would call it a monument i mean it seems like they really wanted to memorialize him with this kind of towering spectacle well it was considered a great loss i mean he was a very prominent uh influential politician yeah. and physician uh, the Democratic Association erected this 20-foot-tall obelisk with a beautiful copper urn at the top. Oh, yeah, it's nice. And a, a, a testimonial to what a, a fine gentleman uh, and Christian uh, and friend that he had been. Uh, Flanner, on the other hand, uh, for several years just goes back into business. Uh, we don't – again, we don't know the details. Um, Flanner was defending himself. Yeah. Wilkins had made the challenge. Well, that was the thing that Flanner, he was one of those that kind of was said to have gone into battle saying, battle, going into the duel, saying that he was going to kind of shoot in the air or just kind of let this peter out, you know. That's exactly right. In fact, it was not until the third shot between parties that Wilkins was killed. So after each shot, Dr. uh, uh, Dr. McCree tried to negotiate a settlement, a resolution to the disagreements. Neither party of, uh, would accept, and so they fired a second shot and then a third shot when Wilkins was killed. That's kind of fascinating um, that it would just continue to escalate when at least one of those men went in thinking, ah, you know, we're just going to end in a handshake and be done with this. And then, you know, you honor would have been saved. They could have done that. They must have been trading some uh, some very vicious uh, remarks back and forth if they couldn't negotiate an end. We'd to say that. today there was a lot of smack talk going on. Yeah, a, lot of, a lot of trash talk. Oh, absolutely. Going on. Yep. But uh, Flanner goes back into uh, business, uh, and then during the Civil War, becomes involved in the blockade running trade. Uh, he buys a blockade runner, invests in a blockade runner called the Lizzie, which is later confiscated by the Confederate government. And Flanner goes to England to serve as an agent for North Carolina in the blockade running trade. And at war's end, just never returns home, but moves to Paris, where he lives for about 20 years. He dies in 1885. Wow. Um, never comes back to North Carolina. Wow. So there's sort of a, a cloud of suspicion and darkness over uh, his intentions in not returning home. And when he didn't return home, uh, property was confiscated and sold for non-payment of back taxes. And uh, when he died in 1885, his remains were brought back to North Carolina, but interred in Newburn huh. and not in Wilmington. So he's not buried at Oakdale Cemetery, not buried. That would have been irony of ironies for yeah, Wilkins and Flanner to be buried in the same cemetery. That would be crazy. Not buried in Bellevue Cemetery. He's buried in Newburn, North Carolina. Well, that kind of gets to in the way that I, I think it's a good kind of wrap up of these two stories or really these three stories, but they all... They all kind of end in regret. There's, you know, he kind of, you know, Flanner kind of leaves not only the country, but kind of his 
statehood. I mean, he doesn't ever come back. You see, um, you see uh, Simpson flee, at least for a little while, be branded, and then you don't really know what happens with him. So he clearly didn't go on to do great things that history recorded. And then even in the other one, you see uh, Bradley, who had, who had killed his friend, um, Swan. He kind of regrets it as well. I mean, he's not tried or, or convicted of anything. And so why do you think people dueled if this was the outcome, that if you did survive, you kind of had that cloud hanging over you for the rest of your life? It was still all about honor. Uh, there's there's no other way to put it. Uh, you, you fight the duel regardless. Family, politics, love, it's honor. I, I found a great article written in 1856 about what uh, a hero really was or what they called a champion of liberty. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a man who undertakes a combat in the place or cause of another or a man who fights his own cause in a duel. So in America in the 1850s, you were considered a hero if you were willing to fight your own cause in a duel. I'm wondering if the people who did survive duels felt like heroes, though, because it sounds like they would have had a guilt to live with in their lives. Oh, yeah. They, they, they'd have a guilt. They would have that initial feeling of euphoria for surviving and winning the duel and saving their honor. But then if they kill someone who's popular, say Aaron Burr, you've got that cloud that's going to hang over you. You're going to have people that are going to ostracize you for the rest of your life. In that case, I mean, that that is his legacy. It is. It, that's that Aaron he, Burr's legacy. You know, that's the end Alexander of, Hamilton. Absolutely. Um, but in the case of Flanner, I mean, he was defending his honor. I mean, yeah. he, he had been challenged. And officially defending himself there once defending the duel himself, started. Right. Yeah. So he was a champion of his own liberty. Yeah. So obviously he had some regrets. He had some compassion for his friend, uh, his associate, uh, his fellow Wilmingtonian. Uh, but in his case, I'm sure that he felt like that he had defended his honor. He was the champion of liberty, his own liberty. Well— Thank you both so much for talking to me about both of these duels. Um, again, we're going to talk even more about Brunswick Town later in the season. Chris is going to be back later in the season as well to talk about a new topic. And um, But the thing I, I kind of want to leave it on is thinking back on these particular duels, they served a purpose, but they also really had rippling effects, you know, not just from that particular duel, that particular moment, but, you know, they affected the lives of everyone who survived for the rest of their lives. Well, in a way, if you think about it, Duels are still going on today. They happen in school schoolyards and everywhere all over the all over the country when kids get into fist fights. It's mm-hmm. usually over a slur, a girl, whatever. Yeah. But it's only they're using fists or whatever they can get their hands on. Yeah. It's a way the young boys sort of establish uh, their manliness. Their manliness, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Ending their manliness. Well, and well, the good thing is history doesn't write about all of those. You know? <laughs> <laughs> probably, not as, probably not as elegant as some of these duels that we hear. Uh, we were involved in duels <laughs> in our own day. That's it for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed and the story of Southeastern North Carolina's duels. Thank you so much for joining me. We'll be back next Thursday to share a new chapter from the local history books. Until next week, be sure to share your thoughts on the show on Twitter with the hashtag CFUnearthed. Or you can email me at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. Also, 
please make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group, where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, I post extra content for each episode, and you definitely don't want to miss out. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. For this new season, I've also launched a Cape Fear Unearthed newsletter that will go out every Thursday. In it, I will include a link to the new episode and any supplemental pictures or videos I uncovered in my research, all delivered right to your inbox. You can sign up for that newsletter at starnewsonline.com slash newsletters. As always, you can get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Kate Fear on Earth was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com and on Twitter at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing is done by Adam Fish. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you stream the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until next week, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. What you learn might just surprise you. you.